You're listening to the Bible uncut and unfiltered. We believe the Bible doesn't need to be watered down or cleaned up to be understood. Our goal is to provide a healing place to discuss the questions you can't ask and the context you won't learn in church. I'm your host, Colin Connor. Now, on to the episode. Genesis 1. Here we go. Let's just begin right in verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. And what more epic way to begin your story is there than that? Now, whenever I'm teaching Genesis, I always like to ask people, what kind of books begin with a statement like, in the beginning? I'll give you a hint. It's not science textbooks. You don't turn to encyclopedia and see, in the beginning. Stories, narratives, novels, These are the sorts of things that begin with a statement like, in the beginning. Kind of like how today we might have a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, or once upon a time. So here, even at the very beginning, we should be picking up on clues that we're stepping into a story. Now, that's not to say that Genesis is untrue or untrustworthy, but that its genre, its method of storytelling, is going to come across differently than that of a theology textbook. You know how to read a particular book just based on its genre. Sometimes you can even tell that by the cover. You do not read a book of poetry the same way that you do your favorite novel. You don't read a novel the same way that you do a science textbook. You don't read a science textbook the same way that you do a dictionary. Everything has a different genre. And even we can go more narrow into it, like with a novel. Is this historical fiction? Is this a spy thriller? Is this science fiction, right? So every different genre, every different type of literature, just by very virtue of the culture that we have, you assume how to read it. And that's good. But when we're talking about a culture that is several hundreds or thousands of years removed from us and halfway around the world, we don't always catch those genre clues the same way. So I think it's important to point out when you have something like Genesis here beginning with the statement in the beginning that this is not going to be a theology textbook. This is not going to be necessarily answering even the questions that we're used to asking of it. Most people come to Genesis here with cre- with questions about the length of the days of creation or about the meaning of original sin or questions on sex and gender or whatever you would have. But that's not necessarily what the text is trying to do. It's not made to be a reference book for your favorite topics. It's a story, and it's telling the story within an ancient context. And that word beginning there does not in and of itself mean the ultimate beginning of all things. It's just referring to the start of a particular story. The same word is used in Genesis 10.10 to describe the beginning of the kingdom of Nimrod. Uh, It's also in Job 8.7, when one of Job's friends is saying, though your beginning was small, your latter days will be very great. So in other words, even though your start, Job, the start of your story was small, at the end, it will be large. Again, in Jeremiah 27.1, the beginning of the reign of Zedekiah, the son of Josiah. So these are just a few illustrations to show you that this word in and of itself does not have to mean the beginning of all time. Now, you can take it to mean that here in Genesis 1.1, but it could also just be saying the beginning of our story is here. Now, I realize for some of you, you might be thinking, well, isn't that the same thing? Like, isn't this verse talking about the very start of all things? Well, it can be. A lot of people take it to mean that, but it can also just be talking about the beginning of God's specific creative work here. And here's how that works. A lot of people tend to read Genesis 1-1 as the beginning of day one of creation. And that is possible. But I believe that verse 1 and about half of verse 2 is actually a prologue, a title, if you will, an opening statement about what's about to come. And that day one of creation doesn't actually start until the second half of verse 2. I know that can be a little hard to wrap our minds around at first, but it's not unprecedented within the Bible for a story to be
begin with an introductory verse, something that is a summary of what is to come. In Hebrew, this happens all the time in the Psalms. Most of the time, the titles of the Psalms that we have in English are actually considered verse 1 in the Hebrew Bible. So like, for example, Psalm 3. So in most English Bibles, you're going to have a title that says a Psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son, or something similar to that. And then verse 1 begins, Yahweh, how are they increased that trouble me? But if you're reading it in Hebrew, what we consider to be the title, a Psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son, is actually chapter 3, verse 1. And that's because it's setting the scene for what's about to come. So from that mindset, it's actually a part of the text itself. It happens quite frequently in the Bible for a story to be introduced uh, and summarized by a verse or two. And that even happens here within creation narratives. Now stay with me because I actually have to go on a little bit of a rabbit trail here in order to explain why this makes more sense. There are two separate creation accounts in the first two chapters of Genesis 1-1 through chapter 2 verse 3 is one whole coherent story. Then Genesis 2-4 begins a second parallel story that goes all the way through chapter 3, or you could even say chapter 3, verse 24. It's a retelling of the story in chapter 1, but from a slightly different point of view. Now let's dig into this a little bit. It's important to realize that chapter and verse divisions are not original to the Hebrew text, or even to the Greek. The Bible was not originally written with chapter and verse divisions. They were added in much later by scribes who were trying to make the Bible easier to study. And they absolutely did. Let's say way back in the day, you had a scroll of Jeremiah that you were studying, and the rabbi, or the teacher, is trying to say, okay, open up your scroll of Jeremiah to where he says this. And then you have to go through the entire scroll until you find that section. You didn't have chapter and verse division. So they absolutely help us to be able to say, look up Jeremiah 6 verse 2, you know, instead of just look for where Jeremiah says whatever. But they are not infallible. They are not provided by God. The Bible did not drop down from heaven with chapters and verses already provided. So these are man-made additions that are there just to help us navigate the Bible. And they do, but they're not infallible. And there are times when the editors don't quite get it right. And unfortunately, page one is a good example of this. Chapter one really should go another three verses. Chapter one really does not end until chapter two, verse three. And that's not a huge deal, but I think it's important to understand the way that these narratives work together and to realize that sometimes in order to get the full context, we actually have to go outside of an individual chapter. Each chapter of the Bible is not self-contained. They all flow together, and sometimes they even flow into each other. Chapter one, verse one, all the way through chapter two, verse three, is one story. Then chapter 2-4, at least through the end of chapter 2, if not into chapter 3, is a second story. And that second story has an introductory verse, Genesis 2-4, which says, these are the generations of the heaven and the earth when they were created. Remember that word generations, toledot, we talked about in one of the key words you should know, the stuff you don't know you don't know for Genesis. Toledot is an important word that is used to set up an upcoming narrative. It's used as a transition point in between two stories. And so we have the very first instance of it here in Genesis 2-4 as a transition point signaling to you that the story in chapter 1 all the way up through chapter 2 verse 3 is now coming to an end and we're moving into a new story. So you have two separate creation accounts here. And it's not that chapter 2 is a continuation of chapter 1. It's actually a retelling of chapter 1 from a completely different perspective. It's kind of like watching a movie that tells the same story from different perspectives. There have been a few different ones that have done this. I think probably the most common is Pulp Fiction, where the start and end of the movie are the same scene, but you're seeing it from two different characters' perspectives. And so it's kind of like that here with Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. Now, I, I say that as a generality, really 
realize I mean Genesis 1, 1 through 2, 3, and then 2, 4 through the rest. So if I say chapters 1 through 2, realize I mean that with a little bit of difference going into chapter 2. And we often tend to assume that these are just one contiguous story. We assume a lot when we read these two chapters. The various stories and sermons that we've heard over the years tend to blend together in our minds to form this hodgepodge where details are merged, and that can obscure key points of the story. But when you take the time to read these as two separate narratives, a number of details stand out that are different between the chapters. Uh, For example, in chapter 1, humanity is immediately created male and female, and we're not told how. Chapter 2, they're created separately and by different means. So in chapter 1, they're basically just spoken into existence and you already have male and female. In chapter 2, we have God stooping down and actually creating humanity with his own hands, and he creates the male and then, later on, female. Genesis 1 has a water existing first, then land, then plants, animals, and finally humans. By contrast, chapter 2 begins with land, and then water is mentioned, and then a human, then plants, then animals, and then a woman. So there are little differences like this that suggest that these are not the exact same story. They're actually two different perspectives on the narrative. So it's not that chapter 2 continues the story of chapter 1, but that it actually retells chapter 1 from a slightly different perspective. Now, going back to chapter 1, verse 1. I've often heard preachers say that the word for create here, the Hebrew word bara, means creation ex nihilo, a Latin term that means out of nothing. In other words, God did not have any pre-existing materials he just created from nothing. And while many conservative Christians do believe that God created the earth from nothing, that word barad itself does not have to mean that. It often actually means to make something from pre-existing materials. For example, Psalm 51.10, where David prays, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. That is the same word create as for here. But he's not asking for God to form a new heart out of nothing. He's not saying replace what is there with some brand new heart. The two lines of the verse are in parallel together. So to create a clean heart is the same thing as renewing a right spirit. That's how Hebrew parallelism in poetry often works. The second line is usually a restatement of the first one. So to create in me a clean heart means the same thing as renewing a right spirit. He's not saying give me an all new heart. He's saying take the one I have and make it new again. Isaiah 54, 16 is another example of this. Behold, I have created the smith who blows the fire of coals and produces a weapon for its purposes. You have that word create there again, where God is said to bara a person who was born by natural means. It's not saying that God created this metal worker out of nothing. The person would have had a mother and father, but yet God is still said to create him, to bara him, even though he came from human parents. Etymologists believe that this word bara comes from a root that means to cut or to divide substances that were already there. Now that would make sense, because all throughout this chapter, God is dividing things that are already there. He divides light and dark. He divides the waters above and the waters below. He divides the land from the water. Eventually, he even divides the human into two. So it makes sense for him to be dividing pre-existing materials. God's purpose in creation is to take disorder and make it orderly for the sake of someone else. That's more the ancient idea of creation. To us today, when we hear the word create, we tend to think it means that you have to have nothing and somehow make something out of nothing. But that's not the way the ancients would have thought. To them, creation would have been more the idea of taking a disorderly something, which you have in the chaos waters that are here, and then to make something productive, something orderly out of that chaos. Notice that the Bible never says God created the waters. Verse 1 into verse 2 is the title, the summary, the introduction, however you want to think of it. But no matter 
how you look at this, it never says God created water. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void. Darkness was over the face of the deep. So immediately, you just have the presence of water. And you have to go, where did this come from? And the text isn't interested in telling us. It doesn't actually give an answer. Because to the ancients, they weren't looking to describe the material origins of the entire universe. They were looking to describe the functional origins of the universe. In other words, the way that things began to be used, what their purpose was. They're not trying to tell you this is how molecules, atoms, and matter came into existence. They're trying to tell you this is how the universe took shape. This is how things started making sense in the way that we see them today. So the biblical story has this theme of chaos water and orderly land. And that's what we have right here at the beginning, is God stepping into a pre-existent state of chaos and bringing order. Now, we touched on this last week, but I want to make sure I bring it up again here. When you see those words, heaven and earth, they are not talking about God's space up in the sky and about the globe. We tend to read that in because that's how we think of those words. Usually when we use the word heaven, we're talking about the good place you go when you die. And when we talk about earth, we're talking about the planet in our solar system. But those are not the concepts here. Heaven is a word that means skies. It's talking about both the air we breathe and basically outer space. And eventually over time that came to be used as a way to describe where God is because we believe in God and we don't see him here on the land with us. So that must mean he is in the place that we can't go. And since humans can't fly, that's up there. He must be up there. And so heavens or skies just came to be a way to reference where God lives. And earth would not have meant the globe. No ancient person would have had the mindset of this being a spherical globe. They would have seen the world as basically a round disk with a lot of water all around, land probably in the center, and whatever your land was is usually what was in the center. And then they would have seen that as being supported by maybe uh, pillars or columns, sometimes on the back of an animal. And then a lot of times you had a hard dome that was over this, almost like a snow globe. We'll talk about that in a few minutes here. So that's the image. When it's saying that God created the heaven and the earth, it means that he created the skies and the land. And the land was without form and void. At least for me, when I heard the words formless and void growing up, I had these ideas of this like amorphous blob just floating through space. I guess I kind of pictured it like those little balls that are like filled with gel. And when you hold them in your hand, they kind of squish back and forth and they can change shape a little bit in your hand. They just kind of slide all over the place. Like, I guess that's pretty much the idea I had in my mind of what this formless and void meant. But that's not really what the Hebrew words mean. The Hebrew words are tohu. Vavohu. They rhyme, and they're really fun to say, too. Tohu vavohu. And it means something different than what we usually think of with formless and void. Tohu means a desert wilderness, a chaotic, desolate space where just nobody is. Kind of like the old Roadrunner and Coyote cartoons, like the area that they would have been in, right? That's what tohu means. Vohu has the idea of purposelessness or meaninglessness, something without function. I like how some more modern scholars have translated this as wild and waste. It, it kind of carries over the poetry of the Hebrew with the English alliteration. So the land was wild and waste. That's a very different picture than formless and void. Those two words, tohu vavohu, show up a couple other times in the Bible when the authors are trying to describe people wandering about without a purpose or not living up to their purpose in life. So here in this introductory description, we have a picture of watery chaos where it's lifeless. There's water there, there's something there, 
but there's no life and there's no real potential for life. It's not the kind of place that you take your family on a vacation, right? This is the kind of place that you get stranded in the middle of nowhere and you think you're going to die because there's nothing around you. Wild and waste. And these are common word pictures in ancient mythologies to describe the state of non-creation before the world came into orderly existence. So here in verse 2, we are given the antagonists of our story. We have a wild and waste earth. We have chaotic waters. So verse 2 introduces us to the villains of our story. We have wild and waste earth. We have darkness. And we have chaotic waters. And so the first three days of creation are going to deal with these specific enemies. Wild and waste earth darkness, and chaotic water. Think about it. Day one, light contains darkness. So you have darkness taken care of. Day two, the waters are separated and ordered. That takes care of the chaos waters. Day three, dry land and edible plants emerge from the waters, taking care of the wild and waste land. So right here at the very beginning, the text is setting up the conflict for what God has to overcome in order for life to thrive in the land. So verse two is basically just three different ways of saying the same problem saying that the earth is tohu vavohu, wild and waste, saying that there's darkness, and saying that there is chaos water. All three different ways of saying the same thing. The earth is uninhabitable, and something needs to change in order for it to become welcoming for life. Verse 3 begins a pattern of God speaking. In fact, God speaks ten different times in this narrative, and we'll see that theme show up other times in Scripture. Uh, when you get into Exodus, you have the ten signs. We usually call them the ten plagues, but within the text they're called the ten signs. And then we have the ten sayings. We usually call the ten commandments, but within the text they're called the ten sayings. So you have this theme, again, of, of ten times that God speaks. Now, Hebrew is a very compact language, so verse 3 could literally be read, And God said, Light be, and light was. <laughs> I, I love the, the brevity of that, how it's just light be, light was. <laughs> and then in verse four, God divides the light that he has now created from the darkness. And this begins a theme in this creation narrative. God's taking something, dividing it in two, and then eventually the goal is for all of the parts to come together again and work in unity and oneness together. Going all the way to when he creates humans in chapter two, he divides the one into two, but the ultimate idea is for them to be able to work together in oneness. Verse 5, he names for the first time. God called the light day. In an ancient mindset, to name something is to give it a purpose, to give it a function. So God's naming this is to say, now you have something to do, light. Notice that he doesn't call the light sun. He calls it day. These are two separate things in an ancient mindset. They did not realize that the sun was the main source of light in the sky. They saw the sun as one thing that maybe provided some light, but then light itself as a separate entity. So this is why you have light being created here on day one, and then the sun on day four. So sometimes you run into people who try to bring up an issue of how could plants that are created on day three grow if you don't have the sun until day four, and how can you have light without the sun? Well, it's because that's the way it worked in an ancient mindset. They thought of light as its own substance and the sun as maybe providing a little bit of light, but also being its own thing. So to them, you didn't have to have the sun in order to have light. And remember, the Bible is not a science textbook. It's not trying to give a modern understanding of where light comes from. It's working within the mindset of these ancient people. So at this point in the story, light as a functioning entity has been created, but it's not in a concentrated form of the stars as we understand it today. It's also important to 
understand the significance of naming in an ancient context. To name something is to give it a function, to give it a purpose, to call out this is the reason for this existing. So Adam gets to mirror that a little bit later on in the story when he names the animals and the woman as well. We get to mirror that a little bit every time we name a new baby or even a pet. Or even if you have a project you're working on and you give it a title, you're kind of participating in God's creative work by naming something and giving it a function. Note as well here in verse 5, the order of evening and morning. This should sound a little bit odd to you because we tend to think of morning and then evening. But in a Jewish framework, the day begins at sundown. This is why if you see a Jewish holiday on a calendar, a lot of times it's actually starting the night before when the actual holiday begins. That's because to us, the day doesn't start until the morning or technically midnight. But, you know, we tend to think of a day starting in the morning and then ending at night. But from a Jewish mindset, the day begins at night and then ends in the morning. So the holiday actually begins the night before, if you will, since the day is actually starting for them there. And while that feels backwards to us, I think there's actually something really intuitive about that mindset. Because then you're starting your day with rest. If your day begins at night, the first thing you do in the day is rest. You sleep and then you finish the day with work. Now, I'm not saying we have to take on that framework, but it's not a bad reminder for us to prioritize rest. So we have the evening and the morning being day one, and that's literally how it would read in the text for each of these is day one. A lot of translations will say the first day, but it would be evening and morning, day one. Verse six, God said, let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters and let it divide the waters from the waters. Firmament is not a very common concept to us. The Hebrew word behind that is rakia. And that refers to a hammered out piece of metal. In English, you'd probably best be able to translate it as a dome or a vault. I kind of like using that word dome. It's like a hammered out metal dome. When I was in college, one of my friends was into doing some metal work. He even had a, a little forge <laughs> that he kept at his house. And so there was one time we took an old railroad spike. We formed a knife from that. We had to heat it up and then reform it into a knife. It took a crazy amount of work just for that little piece of metal to become something else. So that's kind of the idea is you're hammering out a hot piece of metal and creating a rounded dome. Some translations will say separation or expanse, and those highlight the function of the rakia because it's to separate the expansive waters from one another. Now, I realize that concept does not make a lot of sense to a modern mindset, but in the ancient Near East, people looked around and they saw blue waters all around them. And then they looked up and saw blue in the sky as well. And sometimes the blue up there came down here in the form of rain. So they assumed that there was a large body of water above the sky, as well as the ones that we have down here on land. They developed a cosmology that said the land was a floating disk surrounded by water below and water above, and that there was a clear dome separating the two, kind of like you would have in a snow globe, but if there was also water above the snow globe and all around the plastic dome. It takes a little while for us moderns to get used to that way of thinking, but it is pretty intuitive when you consider it. Now, I want to make sure I, I make this clear. The Bible is not a science textbook. I am not saying that we have to believe that there is a dome of water above the earth right now. The Bible isn't trying to say that, but it's working within the ways that the ancient people would have understood the earth. God used images familiar 
to the original audience without necessarily saying that this is the way that the world works. He wasn't saying that this is a scientifically accurate idea. The Bible does not necessarily endorse any particular way of viewing the world. It just works within the context and culture of the people. If Genesis was written today, God would have likely used imagery consistent with our modern understandings, but since it's an ancient text, he used the language of the original audience. The important thing to catch here is that that word rakia normally would imply a very forceful, aggressive hammering in order to get it in the shape that's needed. Yet God just speaks it into existence. He holds back these chaos waters with the power of a simple spoken word. I find it interesting too that even in an ideal creation, God didn't remove chaos. He doesn't say, let the waters no longer be chaotic. Let them all be fresh water, nice babbling brooks and ponds that you can fish in. He doesn't remove the chaos waters. Rather, he just gives them a place to be chaotic. He sets a place for the chaos waters and a place that they can't touch. They exist in the oceans and the seas, but then they no longer are covering the land. And so our job as humans is to continue God's creative work by spreading his creative order into all parts of the world where chaos still reigns. It's worth noting that this will actually get undone later on in the text. Once we get to the flood, that is a story of decreation. Here we have God taking the chaos waters and separating them into waters above, waters below. But in the flood, you have waters coming up and waters coming down, like creation is crashing in on itself, decreating. It's removing the best possible environment for humans to thrive in and literally raining chaos down upon it. So because humans had been living chaotic, disordered lives at that point, so God just gives up the created order to be a very, very powerful object lesson of how humanity was living. There are some scholars, particularly in the Ken Ham creation science type of field, that think that the rakia was removed during the flood. So they would explain away the absence of that today by saying that, well, there used to be an actual dome, an actual firmament, an actual rakia over the earth that held back this body of water above the world, and it created this greenhouse effect, and then during the flood, God just removed the rakia, he let all of the floodwaters collapse down on the earth. The problem with that is, that's not what the Bible teaches. <laughs> and the Bible never says that the rakia has been removed. In fact, a closer examination of Genesis 1 verse 8 tells you exactly what this rakia is. Look at it with me. God called the firmament heaven, the skies. It's the same word for skies that we had in verse 1. So that's what the rakia is. The rakia is, in an ancient mindset, the skies above. And once we get to day 4, in verses 14 to 19, we're going to see that God places the sun, moon, and stars inside the rakia. So the rakia was never removed. It is the skies. And again, we're talking about an ancient mindset. I'm not saying this is scientifically accurate. It's just the terminology of the time, and the Bible's using that. So from this ancient perspective, the sun, the moon, the stars, all the planets, all of that is within this dome, within this rakia. And above all of that is this body of water. And I know that's a little difficult to wrap our minds around because that's not what we're used to. And I don't think the Bible is asking us to accept that point of view. It's just assuming it since that was what was common in the ancient world. Now, day two has a glaring absence. We're here in verse 8, and we're getting to the end of day 2, and we're missing something. Now, it's easy to miss if you've heard the story several times, but a close examination of the text reveals that there is no declaration of good on the second day. I can't tell you how many times I've heard and even said that on every day of creation, God declared it was good. Day 1, God saw that was good. Day 2, God saw that was good. Day 3, God saw that was good. All the way through, and then you get to day 7, and God saw that it was very good. But that's not true. 
you can read this as many times as you want. And believe me, when I first realized this, I was going crazy reading and rereading and rereading and rereading these verses, trying to find where the declaration of good is on day two. And it's just not there. There is no declaration of good on the second day. Now, we don't know exactly why that happened, but I have a pretty good idea. And I think it's when we start to examine the next few verses. See, day three begins with God still dealing with the waters. Look at verse nine. God said, let the waters under the heaven be gathered together into one place. Let the dry land appear. It was so. So day two, God isn't finished dealing with the waters when the day ends. He separates the waters. He divides them. He creates this rakia to keep them apart. But he's still working on the waters on day three. And it's only once he forms this dry land out of the waters that he makes a declaration of good. So I believe that day two doesn't include a statement of good because God didn't actually finish his work with the waters. It's like if you're working on a project that you're supposed to finish today, but it takes you a little bit longer than you were supposed to, so you have to start on the project again tomorrow. But since there was only a little bit left, you have a little bit extra time tomorrow, so you start another project. Like, that is exactly what's going on here. Dealing with the waters took God a little bit longer than one day. For whatever reason, it was just a little bit more work than he scheduled for that particular day. And so day three begins with his finishing the job of day two. And when he does, he says that was good. That's in verse 10. God called the dry land earth, and the gathering together of the waters called he seas. God saw that it was good. But notice that day three doesn't end there. It keeps going. And God said, let the earth, let the land bring forth grass, the herb yielding seed, and the fruit tree yielding fruit after its kind, so forth and so on. Get down to the end of verse 12. God saw that it was good, and the evening and the morning were the third day. So there are six declarations of good, plus the seventh very good in the creation week. But that's only because day three actually has two declarations of good. So in day one, God saw that it was good. Day two, there's nothing about the goodness of that day. Day three, he saw that it was good twice. And then we pick up again with one per day going four through seven. And the reason for that is because God didn't actually finish the work of day two on day two. It took him a little bit into day three. And so he did not call it good until he actually finished that work. And when he saw that he still had a little bit of time left in the day, he went ahead and did a little bit extra on day three. We get a bonus on day three. This is another pattern that's going to show up where days three and six are in parallel with each other, where you actually get two separate created works. Every other day, the creative works are relatively one big project. But on days three and six, you get two separate creative acts where there's a little bit of a bonus added on. And so at the end of day three, you get a second declaration of good. All right, that is all for this week, folks. We will pick up again next week at verse nine. There's a lot more that we still have to talk about in day three of creation. So I want to make sure we give enough time for that. Next week is going to be awesome. We are going to be talking about astrology, sea monsters, the Bible's first blessing, and we're also going to get into what it means to be the image of God. So there's a lot there. Looking forward to it. Until next week, stay curious and keep asking questions about the uncut and unfiltered Bible. You've been listening to The Bible Uncut and Unfiltered. We hope we provide a healing place to discuss the questions you can't ask and the context you won't learn in church. If you enjoyed the podcast, be sure to share it with a friend. You can also rate and review on your podcast app to help other people find it. If you'd like to donate to keep our work going, you can subscribe at patreon.com slash thebibleuncut, where you'll get exclusive access to bonus content. You can also check out our website, thebibleuncut.com, for recommended resources and more. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.